You are listening to the Salem First Hunting and Fishing Podcast. Our mission is to connect with and actively engage Western Oregon outdoorsmen. Listen to this podcast, join our Facebook group at Salem First Hunting and Fishing Club, or participate in any of our club fishing trips, shooting events, or hunting trips. Welcome to the Salem First Hunting and Fishing Podcast, where we want to talk about local outdoor news, experiences, current events, and uh, really dig into our identity as hunters and fishers in the Pacific Northwest, more specifically in here in Salem, Oregon, uh, Willamette Valley. We're in the center of it all, right, Eric? Yeah, we're pretty much smack dab right in the middle of the I-5 corridor. So we have, you know, the coast, we have the mountain ranges going up over into the Cascades, just a lot of great fishing and hunting around here. But, uh, you know, I'm the fishing guy, obviously. Brian's the hunter. I'm more of the hunter. And we have quite a few exciting things going on between turkey season just started up, spring bear, springers in the river, that would be Chinook salmon. And, you know, just all kinds of bass are starting to wake up. Yep. So that's pretty exciting. Eric is a huge bass guy. Yeah, a little bit. Mm -hmm. And our guest today, coming from Bad Ash Outdoors, we have Ashley Lewis. Ashley, thanks for being on. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. So just to introduce our guest real quick, Ashley grew up in Washington State. Is that right? That's right. Western Washington. Shout out to Olympia. All right, Olympia. So uh, growing up out there, what was your upbringing like? So... I was actually born in Aberdeen, Washington, and um, if you've ever drove out to the coast in Washington, you probably drove through the area that I was born and spent the first few years of my life, and Grays Harbor is just an interesting kind of uh, town. It's very different than Olympia, very different than Seattle. Yeah, I don't even know how to explain it, like Aberdeen. But uh, my upbringing was super humble, to be honest with you. Like, um, my mother worked at a wood mill, a Simpson Door Company in McClary, and my father also worked at the door mill. And then later on, like, my stepfather also worked at the door. Like, everyone works for the wood mill in town. And so um, very much working class family. And so in the area that I grew up, you do one of two things. You get in trouble or you go fishing. And I picked fishing. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> Good choice. Yeah, yes. So, I, I wish mean, more people would make that choice. <laughs> it's right. And um, so to me, that was an activity that I could really sink myself into. I've always been an outdoors kid. Um, anytime I'm happy, I want to go play outside. When I'm sad, I want to go and trot around in the woods. And when I want to you know, share experiences with people, I want to take them outside to do something. And so that's kind of the yeah, way that awesome. I grew up. And, you know, family vacations weren't to like you know, Hawaii or anything like that. Our family vacations were to Rainbow Falls campgrounds <laughs> and nice. uh, yeah. places where you're going to go trout fishing or something like that. So that's that's how I was raised. Cool. Yeah. That sounds like the, the Pacific Northwest lifestyle right there. Yes, I love it. absolutely. So, uh, we're excited. So this is episode number two. And our it's so funny that the whole premise of this podcast is supposed to be Pacific Northwest, even down to Willamette Valley specific. But our last guest what uh, came to us from Missouri. So, you know. <laughs> and so here we are, Washington now. We're kind of we're narrowing it in, right? Yeah. We're we're hitting the bullseye, but we're we're glad to have a another PNW lover on the show. 
Um, so you mentioned that, uh, you're a fishing guide. Yeah. So that was started. Wow. This is such a ridiculous story for how this started. So for one, (laughs) for a little bit of context, I'm a 142nd generation angler. So I'm a member of the Quinault Indian nation and my family, my ancestors have Mm. lived on the Washington coast and fished for salmon and lived with salmon, uh, for a millennia. Um, so in, in addition to being raised and growing up playing outside, there is a very deep connection that my family has with fishing for salmon specifically and Mm -hmm. steelhead. Um, so I think that that desire to go salmon fishing has always been there, but the way that it turned into guiding is, um, (laughs) as one does, goes to beauty school in my early twenties when I'm trying to figure out like who I am. Um, and so I was like, I'm going to be a hairstylist and I'm going to do makeup. And like, uh, and honestly, I really loved it. I enjoyed it. Doesn't pay the bills very well. Um, Mm. and so I was fishing a ton at the time and one of my peers, um, one of my tribal peers encouraged me to get into fishing, like as guiding, And I thought, you know, I'll run a few trips here and there just to bring in a little bit of side money. And um, that's what I'll do. And then I decided I don't really like the beauty industry. It really, it was fun for a minute. I'm growing out of it like really quickly. Um, Mm -hmm. And I've spent enough time fishing to like really fall in love with the sport, but also fall in love with um, the idea of continuity and seeing fishing being available for you know people past our generation um and it is a very like deep value to salmon people indigenous salmon people we want to see this for our futures too and so i decided i'm going to go back to school so i enrolled at the university of washington in american indian studies first in aquatic fisheries science but i'm I'm less interested in science and more interested in storytelling so i switch majors Mm. and then i ramped up the guiding to pay for school books Um, nice, nice. Yeah. And then I made a Facebook page about my fishing. It was called first, before it was Badass Outdoors, it was Quinault Sport Angling. Nice. (laughs) Just really. That's really searchable. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Searchable right down the middle of the road. We're not going to fluster anybody with this name. Like Uh we know what this is about from the name. Yep. And, um, I started fishing and I think social media, the people that I was, um, people that found my page and were like exposed to my fishing content, I think they saw something unique and different. Um, mm. Here is a an indigenous woman that is, you know, really interested in the future of salmon. And um, I'm supporting that idea by fishing for salmon and taking people yeah, out yeah. on the Quinault Indian Reservation and showing them an experience that you can't really find anywhere else. So, um, yeah. so l- long story longer, uh, beauty school, <laughs> undergraduate social media, like these are the things that have like given rise to what my fishing guiding career was like. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. And, and to hear your unique culture that kind of brought it all together. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. I think I really discovered my identity as an indigenous, you know, cause we all like, you go through this like a identity crisis as a teenager. Who am I? Who, who do I want to be? And then you get into your twenties and you start kind of like solidifying that. Like, okay, like I, f- I've tried some things out, like really, who am I? And um, through salmon fishing alongside Quinault fishers on the Quinault and Queets rivers, 
Um, I really came into my identity as an indigenous woman and that ignited some purpose for me that has really been the through thread of my experience up until now. So yeah, that has been my culture, uh, my role as an indigenous woman has become like deeply meaningful and profound to me. I love that. That's awesome. So did you grow up uh, subsistence fishing and hunting or were you just strictly, you know, fishing the the fisheries when they were available and open? I think it was a little bit of like more sport recreation at first, but there was also, um, so Quinault people, we, um, we, salmon is a staple in our diets, but so was like wild game. And so are razor clams. Clams are a big part of that. And so the subsistence part really came in there. I, I genuinely thought that everyone's family went clam digging every clam tide and had clams, like razor clams for dinner, like two or three times a week. I thought everybody did that. And so you can imagine, you know, fourth grade, you're going over and staying the night at people's houses. And it's like, why don't they ever have clams for dinner? Like, that's terrible. Mm-hmm. Maybe they don't, maybe they don't dig very well. Like, I don't know. <laughs> um, but I think it was once yeah. I grew up and I realized that like, no, that was very much a way of life. And that was the subsistence piece um, that my family was deeply engaged with, um, and which sounds like romantic and everything, but really like going clam digging with my mother who taught me fishing and clam digging. It wasn't about, it was, she, it was about the love, but it was more about the limits. The more kids you have with little sacks, <laughs> the more limits that you have. So it was, oh yeah, sure. <laughs> it was subsistence. It was a way of life. It was for the love, but it was really for the limits. And, um, that was the subsistence piece for me. Yeah. I like it. Real quick to backtrack uh, when you were talking about your name, Badass Outdoors. So my last name is Ashton. Nice. And so I totally get the, my wife and I, our Wi-Fi password is kiss my Ashton. (laughs) There's just so many fun things. When I was growing up in high school, you know, you get ashtray, ash hole. Oh yeah. Badass Outdoors. Way to embrace it. That's great. Yeah. Thanks. I had a, I had a knack for wrecking my ATV as a teenager. I loved ATV writing and I came to school often with bandages and stitches and stuff like that. So Crashly was the, the original nickname before Badass. Okay. (laughs) Hey, that, that's, that's a pretty nice one though, you know? (laughs) Right. There's worse, right? There's worse versions of Ash. Yep. So you also have found a lot of success uh, social media-wise, especially we're seeing Instagram, uh, a lot of followers, YouTube, you have a lot of engagement. Could you say again, when when did that kind of come into play? Yeah, so throughout the, here's the thing about being a fishing guide. Exper- you'll have experiences that you can't, that aren't replicable, replicable in any other format. You go out with people, they want this experience, you're curating an experience with a resource that is um, sometimes unpredictable. So there's always this sense of like, are we going to catch them? Are we not going to catch them? What is the weather going to do to me today? And but every single time without fail, there's this adventure aspect to it. But the thing with fish guiding is you can only take so many people and there are only so many fishable days in a year. And I loved what I was doing so much. And I was entirely capped out for how many days I could fish and uh, how many people I could fish. And so I felt like I love this. This has given me some experience um, and some chops, really, that I needed to go forward with my career. But there was a sense very early on for me that 
this is great, but it's not going to be enough and I need to evolve this. And so I loved the idea of sharing my world with other people. I think that's best experienced when you're sitting, you know, behind me in the rower seat or in front of me on the rower seat. But the next best thing outside of that is for me to like through video, through storytelling, through another medium to bring more people along with me. And that's really what I wanted. I wanted to like share my experience with more than three anglers per day. And so, I mean, at first, yeah. the social media is just a way of like, hey, look, if you like were to scroll back like really far on my Instagram feed or on my Facebook feed, you would see every post is like limits, caught another limit today, caught another limit today, oh, yeah, yeah. book me, book me. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah. Seats open. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then it kind of morphed yep. into like, here's how I did this. And mm. here's what was so great about today's experience. And let me yeah. introduce you to the so-and-so who caught their first fish or their first salmon ever and how it it was, you know, a profoundly life-changing experience for them. Uh, So telling that story, I chose social media to do that. And I think, again, that really resonated with people because I'm I'm of the mindset of abundance, not scarcity. I want to tell all the secrets. I don't care about the secrets. I want to tell all of the Mm. methods. I want to share all of the experiences. I want to share all of the knowledge um, because I truly, and I truly believe this, you guys, when we get people involved in what we are doing, like we, the royal we, like us three, and then like all of our listeners, what we are doing, when we get somebody involved in that, they start caring about it in a really profound way. And that's the, that's what gets me out of bed every morning is the idea that we create advocacy, that we ensure the future of what we are doing, our livelihoods, but the fish swimming in the river, the animals running Uh around in the woods, the clams digging their holes out in the beach, we ensure yeah. the future of that through participation because when people are there, that's when they Absolutely. start caring about it. Yeah, I love that shift from, uh, you know, talking about limits and went out, caught fish, you know, we got the resource, but then switching that to loving the resource and showing people what is really behind because to people who aren't involved in the outdoor space at all, what do they see? They see whack them and stack them, you know, they see just it's all about killing and getting meat and filling tags but you know there's something underneath of all that that's deeply important to us in our identity as outdoors men and women and especially for you and your your culture and and the family line that you come out of but even for someone like me who just loves the outdoors and loves engaging with that and wanting to put the the best image out there for the non-hunters and the non-fishermen to see that you know there's more to us we're not just here to to kill things we're here to love the resource and to be connected with where our food comes from so really love that you're doing that I love how you said that and one thing that you said I think is like really important to like tease out a little bit and that's the identity piece is it becomes like a very part of who you are who you are as a person is connected with yeah these salmon runs these, you know, mm-hmm. you're a big game hunter, it becomes connected in those habitats, like you become a part of an ecosystem, yeah. the moment you position yourself as an angler, or as a hunter. And I think that like, there's an identity thing that's very real there. And I love how you yeah. said that. Awesome. Well, uh, I think that was a good introduction for you, Ashley, we're gonna talk a, a bit more in depth on a few of those things later on in the show. But we have a couple other portions to take care of. First of all, we have an announcement. Eric, you want to let people know what we have coming up at the end of the month? Sure. 
So April, the end of the month. 29th. 29th. <laughs> I was like, I always want to say the 28th. 29th. The 29th. 29th. Uh, we are having a fishing derby. We're going to have a small little tournament. It's on a local pond here. It's just going to be bass species only. We're going to have some door prizes for biggest fish of the day, most weight of the day. So anyway, um, yeah, we're giving away a rod reel combo, some bait some hooks i mean we're gonna have a mystery tackle box to give away as well yeah we, we bought one of those one of those bigger ones nice ashley do you do the mystery tackle box in it ever i have never done it but the whole idea of like you're gonna get some fishing stuff and it is it's a mystery you don't know exactly what it's gonna be but you still know it's fishing stuff you're gonna be yeah, happy yeah, with yeah. it uh-huh. <laughs> i love that idea yeah, eric and i have been so tempted to open that thing and see what's inside <laughs> but we we're gonna save that for whoever wins it you know it'll yeah. be a surprise you're better people um, than me i would totally open it and lie <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, i've been keeping my eye on eric it's in his office so i'm like <laughs> come on dude leave that thing alone but eric you left out the most important part it's free it is free. We're going to serve lunch. Yeah, it's not going to cost anybody anything to come out and enjoy a day of fishing with us. So don't feel like you also need to own a bunch of gear to come out. We do have some that uh, we're willing to lend to people that need to to have that. I think for Bryant and I, we're going to be doing a lot of running around while everybody else is having fun, but excited. And we're going to try and make it an annual thing. So hopefully it'll get bigger every year. Yep. So this year it's on a private pond with a lot of really good largemouth. We've been promised that there'll be some big boys out there. So uh, find us on our Facebook page, Salem First Hunting and Fishing Club to sign up. Uh, you can. We have an event set up there. You can click interested if you're interested. And we'll reach out to you with details because we don't want to just blast where this private pond is. Uh, exactly. You know how it is. We it's gotta, one of those day of things we're going to release. Yep. So be ready for that spring fishing trip 2023. So one thing that we'll do on this show every single episode is talk to keep Eric and I accountable to our passion for the outdoors is we're going to talk about something outdoors related that we've been doing this week. For me, I went on my first turkey hunt. I vote, you know, you buy the sports pack here in Oregon. We have the sports pack. It comes with every tag in the state. It's, you know, deer, elk, you know, all, all, all the normal stuff, bear, cougar, uh, and turkey. So usually I just let that turkey tag go to waste. But this year I decided I got real excited actually about trying to figure out those things and how to hunt them. Uh, I only have access to public land, so this has been a pretty cool adventure, uh, anyway, I went out scouting last week and I found a hen Ooh. all by herself and I was blown away because I've spent a lot of time in the woods and I've never seen a turkey out there. You know, yeah. I, it's just like when I go looking for him, I find him. I was pretty blown away that that happened. Uh, maybe it's cause of the time of year I'm out there, but found a bunch of turkey droppings, get, you know, practice calling, got a cheap decoy. I was all ready to go hiked out there it's about three miles to the spot kind of in the foothills only about a thousand feet really low uh tucked behind some private uh fields in a public area and it's got about two inches of snow oh wow Did not expect that yeah uh that was a surprise i was not dressed for snow at all sure and i don't think the turkeys were either because they didn't have anything to say about it <laughs> uh, didn't see a bird i sat there for a couple hours and then i began to walk and look for tracks because i thought oh you know what snow maybe i'll see some tracks 
I mean, I found plenty of deer, but I didn't find any turkey. I did the check my map. I walked 10 miles that day, uh, which is a lot more than I usually walk or would expect to walk on a turkey hunt. <laughs> but, you know, I found a couple of great places. I'm going to go set up again when it's not snowing and see if I can make something happen. Uh, but that that was my my week in the turkey woods. That's so cool that you saw a hen, though. Like, sometimes yeah, when yeah. you come out, you're doing something new. And, like, even if it's, like, not the intended, like, target you've found, you're like, huh, I really did find it. It worked. It kind of worked. Yeah, I found just, a turkey. living creatures. It's not <laughs> yeah. just trees and bugs. Right. And squirrels. There's actual things. They yeah. do exist. Nice. Well done. Yeah, I know. I didn't believe it because, like I said, I've I've been hunting for years and spent a lot of time in the woods and... I, I've never seen a turkey out there. I've seen plenty of them in the farmer's fields, but sure. yeah, it was a cool experience. Well, and then for me, I'm getting ready for the upcoming bass season. So spawn's going to be here pretty soon. I'm just trying to figure out which events I'm going to fish or have time to fish. Definitely probably going to fish the Pro-Am this year. That should be fun. That's nice. That's on the Columbia. Whose boat are you going to bum? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to bum my way onto a boat. Yep. So, Give a buddy a call. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Nice. Yeah. So I was, I was noticing that you and I have some mutual friends and they're, they're people that are on the Shimano G Loomis team. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about your sponsorships and your corporate deals and stuff like that? Yeah. So uh, I love that you brought up Shimano. Shimano was my first fishing family. And like, I almost get emotional anytime I talk about Shimano because they were the first like major rod reel, like sponsorship that I had um, and really, really saw the value in what I was doing. They didn't treat me like, um, and honestly, I've been on like some pro staff situations where it's like, we brought you on cause you're a girl and you fish and that's exciting yeah, to us. Yeah. This was not <laughs> that token what- woman. Yes, exactly. <laughs> And this is not what that was at all for them. Um, They saw the value in what I was doing. They saw that I was at the top of my game and they really wanted to invest um, in in what I was doing. So they, you know, of course, sponsored me, but they also brought me out to lots of different events. So the first time I ever worked the Pacific Northwest sports shows was on the behalf of Shimano. I went to ICAST in Orlando on the behalf of Shimano and um, really got connected with the outdoor industry nationally through Shimano. I've made some of my best friends through Shimano. I've had really incredible fishing experiences through them. And they, um, they never once treated me differently because I was a woman angler. Um, they expected excellence all of the time and like shout out to like Blaine Anderson and the rest of the Shimano team. Like they're still like, I have the utmost respect for that group of people, um, and like phenomenal, phenomenal products, um, as well. And I, I absolutely love them. I did end up moving over to, um, pure fishing. I had a show in the Northwest for like a hot second and a very hot second. Um, okay. <laughs> and it was called breakout with bad ash and, uh, pure fishing nice. ended up being like a big sponsor to that. Um, and pure fishing has also been like so supportive of me. I love that, um, for someone who wants to get people involved with fishing, um, taking them to pure fishing products. So like, you know, Berkeley, Abu Garcia, ugly stick, pen fishing, a lot of these things are way more approachable in terms of price for folks. Um, and they offer like fantastic products, like, and a huge range of products. So it was really great to work with them. 
but I've been really fortunate to have some like really incredible sponsors over the years. Right now, the love of my life is my my kayak. I named him Tom Cruise nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because he is an electric. Um, I have a Minn Kota motor in Ooh. it, so he's he cruises. Um, so my Tom Cruise is, all right, all is right. the love of my life. And Johnson Outdoors uh-huh. and the water watercraft team has just been like. Like I've I've been very fortunate with all of these groups to have people that really believe in me, support what I'm doing, um, and see a a really cool future together. So some of those folks have been fantastic. But I'm glad that we have that in common. That you um, the Shimano thread in common. That's really cool. Yeah, my buddy um, Ryan Sparks. He's been on the Shimano team for a couple years. Yeah, I worked with Ryan at the sports shows, the Pacific Northwest sports shows. I love Ryan. Ryan is so wonderful. He's a good dude. Um, our families uh, are basically from the same town, you know. Um, my cousin dated his sister, and you know they all went to high school together and stuff. So then up in Alaska, in Alaska, or Corvallis. Oh, Alaska. Haines, Alaska. Oh, up in Alaska. Cool. Yeah. So we go back quite a few years. Our families. Uh, turns out when <clears throat> Ryan came down to Oregon State, he was he got on their fishing team. Well, he needed a boat. And he, I don't know if my dad sold it to him or gave it to him, but ended up giving my duck boat to Ryan so <laughs> Ryan could fish. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, you don't need this. Well, but That's funny. You know. And look at where you are now, Eric. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> and look at where Ryan is. Yeah, yeah. No. Like the he, boat. <laughs> yeah, he's been it was the boat. A living, you know, within the fishing industry. Awesome. Um, Eric, real quick. Getting back to talking about your upcoming bass season, you wanted to shout out a couple lures that you're looking forward to fishing? Oh, yeah. So kind of lately I've been nerding out a lot on uh, Japanese stuff. So Mega Bass, uh, Lucky Craft, and this right here that I have in my hand is a sleeper gill made by Mega Bass. This Ooh. is a three-quarter three ounce um, sleeper gill. This is going to be a hot hot little lure this year that Uh, looks good guys yeah i know and what's great about it is uh the weed guard is actually a top fin and then it's got these little pectoral balancers down here so it should be pretty sweet movement in the water yeah i'm I'm really excited to see this gonna be the first one i try the second one that i want to talk about today is mike buka's bullshad i don't know if you've seen buka's stuff his swim baits are legit we pulled out of the package where we're sitting here waiting to talk to you and we're playing with it (laughs) nice (laughs) it's got sharp hooks yep Um, Yep. it's got a really really sweet movement to it it's four serrations so it's going to be you can fish it fast you can fish it slow but this one in particular is a three three and three quarter inch length and uh it's a slow sinking so yeah and it's an articulated shad right yep articulated shit so that's going to be a cool one to try out i'm really excited to have one of those in my tackle box this year third one and anybody that knows me knows that i love to fish a lipless crankbait Mm. (laughs) so i got a janko here and this one's the rip knocker i love that color yeah it's kind of an iridescent uh it's got a little bit of purple a little bit of green a little bit of yellow blue black so it looks like it's going to be a pretty hot spawn spawn lure so i'm really excited to try this so it's called the lip knocker ashley we were talking before the show 
Have you ever heard of a lure called a dock knocker? A dock knocker? We were thinking of making our own lure and calling it the dock knocker. Is that the one where but, you cast and nail the dock instead of getting it in yep, the water? <laughs> yep, yep, yep. We're, and then we, I started thinking, well, maybe Eric should just change his fishing uh, account handle to dock knocker and you can be the dock knocker. I think Oops, that would be an incredible okay. handle. I would follow anyone that like has that kind of humility about their fishing <laughs> situation. <laughs> yeah. I was going to change it to the rod father just because uh, I, I have so many That's rods. a good one. But it might be taken. But yeah, if, the rod if father, it's, if it's the not dock taken, knocker. Yet, the you dock gotta be the knocker. dock knocker. I'll yeah. change it. We'll and then, see. yeah, I was, I was also thinking if you are one who tends to ride your boat up too quick when you're coming in for a landing, <laughs> you could also be the dock knocker in that regard. I've done that. Ah. <laughs> so, moving on now to talk about a local news story. Some really uh, big news in the smelt fishing world yeah. here in Oregon on the Sandy River. We had our first smelt fishing uh, season open for the fir- so for the first time since 2015. Uh, and here's the thing. It was March 30th, which is a Thursday in the middle of the week. Mm-hmm. And it was only open from noon to 7 p.m. Shorter than a work shift. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Take that day off. <laughs> and it was dip net only. Yeah, dip net only. Yeah. So so then I started thinking if you if you have work, if you don't have a dip net, you're out of luck. But I guess uh, it didn't matter because there was thousands of people. The banks were just lined with people with dip nets uh, going after those smelt. There, it was all the way from the mouth up to Stark Street Bridge. So quite a large portion of the Sandy River. Oh, that is a good portion of the Sandy River. Were there? Did it seem like people had a lot of success doing that? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Uh, it was a ten pound limit, which they said was what? It, how did they say it? Half of a five gallon bucket is approximately ten pounds. I think it was half of a five gallon freezer bag. Oh, freezer freezer bag. Oh, okay. I think is what it was. was okay, should be around ten pounds. Mm. Wow. Well, I, I've never even seen a five-pound freezer bag. That's five-gallon. So, a oh, five-gallon. So, you need a five-gallon freezer bag, a dip net, and a day off of work so far. Yeah. So we're up in the ante here. Yeah, <laughs> that's so great. Yeah, and there was no tag or no reporting or anything. All that you did was get your fishing license, and you were clear. Uh, of course, I I don't know. I'm curious how they would have managed that 7 p.m. shutdown. How many? enforcement officers did they have out there i wonder we thought smelt were kind of interesting like i had never really thought about them before they're just kind of a a, an oily bait fish but you know people like to eat them still uh they fry them whole Mm -hmm. is a popular way to eat them um but eric you kind of looked up a few things about how long they live and what they do yeah so basically they they spawn in our river systems and as they get bigger and migrate out towards the ocean, they have a general life expectancy of about seven years. And that's really dependent. Like at the top, right? Right. And that's kind of dependent upon how fast or how quickly or how safely they get out to the ocean. They do have kind of a, a longer life cycle for fish, which is kind of cool. I mean, I, I was kind of expecting three to five years somewhere in there. To hear seven plus, I was like, wow, yeah. that's pretty and amazing. I could imagine. I mean, it said they're only like five inches long. Yeah, they kind of vary in size, um, you know, between three and a half to five 
six inches. So it sounds to me like a perfect little bait fish. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, they're anadromous, so they go out to the ocean to feed and grow, and they kind of look like a sardine to me. Yeah. Ashley, uh, being uh, part of the Quinault tribe, have you ever dip netted? I have not dip netted. A lot of my family and friends have done it. So generally, um, Quinaults either are crab fishers, so there's like a commercial crab operation, or gill netters. And so they have gill nets on the Quinault River, sometimes on the Queets River, that sort of thing. Um, when I was a kid, we did like, um, we would jig for herring, but um, okay. when the herring like would come in off the coast... Um, but yeah. I've never done uh, any sort of dipping of anything, but I would be totally sure. down to dip for some and, food fish. Yeah, <laughs> dip for some <laughs> smelt. Yeah. And the, the herring, they get bigger than a smelt, don't they? They can, yeah. It was just a huge, massive run, many times bigger than the previous years. I guess they just assumed that there was enough of them to open a season because I don't know how you would even count them. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. That's your local hunting and fishing news. The smelt, which were once listed as threatened, have come back in record-breaking numbers. So really cool there to anyone who got to participate in that. Let us know how it was, and maybe they'll open up again next year if we have another good run. I guess it's time we get into our interview with Ashley, with Badass Outdoors, I should say. <laughs> um, <laughs> So we have five icebreaker questions that we want to ask you, and these are pretty quick, rapid fire. If you want to elaborate, go ahead. One one word answers is also fine. Okay, okay. I already know the answer to this first question, but first one, mono or fluorocarbon? Fluoro. This shouldn't be a question (laughs) in anyone's mind, and if anyone thinks differently, they are wrong, and I will fight you in the streets if you think something differently. (laughs) All right, when and where? I like it. <laughs> oh, mono guy. Yeah, that was a that was a topic of discussion last episode because I've just always used mono and I'm just content with it. But I also don't really use a bait caster that often, so that might be why. Yeah. Which goes to our next question: bait caster or spinning? Bait caster. Nice. How nice. dare you? <laughs> no there's a time and a place for both i will say the majority of the time i'm using a bait caster there are a few like float fishing uh there's certain situations where i do like um, a spinning rod or like a some like finesse sort of like bass gear like i will i will really like a spinning rod for that so for finesse gear i'm generally going um a spinning spinning reel and then bait caster for like literally anything else so do you ever break out the old close face Zebco? Yes, I do. Oh, really? Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, like, it's, I love this industry. Boy, people get really into their gear. So it's like, it's humbling. Oh, yeah. Like, let's give, uh-huh. I know that everyone started with the Zebco. Don't, I don't yep. care how into it you are. I don't care how long you've been fishing or how amazing your career is. You need to stay true to the Sebco. And if you don't... <laughs> Get back to your roots. Right. Your eight-year-old self is going to kick your butt all the way down the dock. <laughs> Respect the Zebco. Zebco and a nightcrawler. Exactly. Back yep. to your roots. <laughs> yep. Yep. All right. Fishing or hunting? Oh, Fishing. Oh, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard because elk season's coming up up in the peninsula. Mm-hmm. And like, boy, as soon as that comes, I'm like, oh, I'm really excited for it. But fishing is my at the center of my heart. Yeah. It's got you to where you are today, right? Yeah, definitely. And I think like I'm I'm more comfortable as an angler than I am as a hunter. Like I'm a decent hunter. I'm a good I'm a good angler. And I'm just like, 
a mediocre hunter. <laughs> I'm a mm, I'm dangerous enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so with that being said, uh, do you hunt with a bow or a rifle? I hunt with a rifle. I've always, I have so much appreciation and respect for bow hunting. And I know that if I did it, I would absolutely love it. And I've been lying to myself for years saying, I'm going to try it this year. Oh, I'm going to start practicing this year. And I also say that about the piano. I'm going to pick up the piano again. (laughs) I also say that about learning Spanish. I'm going to like, it's just, it's somewhere in the queue of things that I'm going to do. It's just, boy, it's not time. All right. It brings us to our last question. Kayak or boat? Ooh, boy. There are different stages of my life. The last chapter of Ashley would have said a boat. This chapter of Ashley says a kayak. Tom Cruise. Yeah, Tom Cruise. (laughs) Like, I love him. No. um, (laughs) Oh, gosh. Boy, this is so hard. Oh, wow. Why do I feel like I I feel like my blood pressure rising, feeling like I have to (laughs) make a choice. Um, Boating has been most of my life. Rafting really has been a big part of that too. I love running raft trips, fishing raft trips. Um, But there is something really special. And I think once I stopped guiding, and I think I'm going to come back to get, we'll talk, I'll mention that maybe later. But um, Mm -hmm. while I'm fishing and not guiding, there is a certain autonomy that comes with kayaking. And there's a certain access that comes with kayaking that has opened up my world to so many more fisheries and like going out on the ocean in a kayak like just brings a perspective of like life and like an ecosystem that like feels really really cool from a kayak so i'm gonna go kayak for now cool i i've never had the opportunity to use one of the the decked out you know fishing kayaks with the pedestal seat and I guess it's not a full on, you know what I'm saying? Those, those, yes. My my buddy had one and I just have a bright orange sit inside kayak. Yeah, love it. That I also use just for everything. It's had a it's had two dead deer on it. Um, that so, is awesome. Know, yeah, yeah, it's had a handful of fish as well. Uh but yeah, I've always been intrigued by that world. Instead, I have a John boat, so there you go. <laughs> when I come back up to the Northwest, um uh, which will be soon, we should go kayak fishing. I have a couple of right. kayaks. The three of us should go and you should experience yeah. it. Yeah, it's so cool. Sounds good. Yeah, that would be awesome. I'm all for it. So so speaking of boats, <clears throat> when we were kind of researching Ashley and we were talking about the one boat challenge earlier, mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about that. Because when I was doing the research on that, um, it was down in Mexico yeah. And I noticed that they had the long line, the bass boats, into the lake. Yeah, from a helicopter. Oh, boy. I don't even know That's where to start crazy. with this experience. <laughs> <laughs> the One Boat Challenge was maybe one of my favorite experiences in life up until this point. Um, wow. Oof, gosh. There's a handful that are right up there with, like, my favorite experiences in life. So I went, um, really, the... El Salto, um, and that's the lake that we're on in Mexico, is Lake El Salto. Um, that started really with a sword fishing trip in Florida. Oh. And so I went um, after ICAST. I uh, was working with Gerber Knives at the time. And uh, some of the guys associated with that group, uh, my friends Martin and Andrew, they were like, hey, we're going to go fishing. Let's all go. I jumped in. And they were like, hey, you know, so-and-so is going to be there. I'm like, yeah, 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 cool. Let's, let's go fishing. And this group of people like ended up, 
I affectionately call them the wolf pack now um, because we <laughs> left as a bunch of strangers and like new friends and we came back as a pack ready to prowl oh, the yeah. world, right? Nice. Um, <laughs> and we had this incredible trip. We caught a 400 pound swordfish together. It was one of the coolest wow. experiences. Um, but uh, that group of people included the brand manager for Humminbird um, and works with Minkota and some of the folks involved in the that team. And so when they were putting together this group of people and the premise of the show is they're going to take a group of elite anglers that don't fish bass primarily. And, um, and there was an NFL player and, um, a snowboarder and uh, another YouTuber and guides that were, you know, not in the bass realm dropped everybody off on a lake. And we didn't know anything about what was going on until we got there. So, okay, I'm going to Mexico. I'm not really sure what's going on here. So we get dropped off at El Salto with a Vexus boat decked out with Humminbird, Mincota, Talons, like (laughs) the whole like one boat network, as they call it. And it was like, you're going to compete against each other. These like elite competitors. Here's the stuff. You get no other information. Go out and have go catch some fish now. Wow. So, wow. Yeah, it was incredible. And, 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 um, And what was the goal? Did they, did they even tell you the goal? Yeah, so it was a competition. And at the end, okay. uh, the winner gets um, thousands of dollars to go to an organization of their choice. And so I picked the Brown Folks Fishing Organization, um, an organization um, that's trying to like get Black, Indigenous, people of color into fishing. That's their... So I wanted to raise money for that group. Oh, cool, yeah. And uh, everyone yeah. kind of had their own organization that they wanted the money to go to. So if you won, your organization of choice got, like, a great donation to them. Um, cool. So we competed. It was a great time. Um, the helicopter stunt was, like, the coolest thing. Um, yeah. So, like, <laughs> the boat came in, like, and left via helicopter. So... The, the crown okay. piece of the show is you have a helicopter yeah. from this dude named Morgan from Idaho. <laughs> like, as a, you know, they have a really great helicopter company. Um, but um, nice grabs this Vexus boat, beautiful bass boat, um, drops it off in the lake. And then, like, we're fishing for the week. And then the boat leaves the lake via helicopter. And it's like, where is it going to go next? So for the next wow. iteration of the one boat challenge, like who knows where the helicopter drops yeah. the boat off next. But it was incredible. And, and, would say, like, and you're not in the boat when it gets dropped off. Unfortunately, no. I advocated for <laughs> let's just do it. What could possibly go wrong? But they were like, eh, no, no. <laughs> this could possibly go Some wrong. Some safety yeah. guy. Was going, no, yeah, it was yeah. so great. And like I made, and through that experience, I made friends and like solidified friendships that have become like some of the most important in my life. And like, I wouldn't trade that experience for literally anything. I wouldn't trade it for a million dollars. I loved that yeah. every moment of that. You said that was up there and it might even be your favorite hunting or fishing story, but do you have another one that you want to share with us? So I'm going to go back to the sword fishing trip and I, and I like, I tease the wolf pack, I tease the, the swordfish, but this is actually... This is really, I think um, there's important things to glean from this fishing trip. So I've given you the the context. Post iCast, which is a really great fishing show. A lot of companies um, unveil their new products for the year. People get to, you know, go and check that out. It's a great industry event. But after that, I jump in a van with some people I know, some people I don't know. And it is a minivan, just to paint a picture here. Okay. And like, <laughs> so I'm, I'm riding with these folks 
And like, everyone seems really fun, really cool, but we're all just kind of like getting to know each other, right? We go out peacock fishing um, in in mm. Florida, in the West Palm Beach area. And okay. um, w- that's when you're like, kind of like assessing, you're like, okay, like, this guy can fish. And they're like, all right, like, this woman, she she knows what she's doing. So we're like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> like, we're, we're assessing and um, yeah, kind of getting, yeah. kind of like mapping each other in the fishing world, I guess. And then we go out on our friend Seth's boat and um, we go out sword fishing. Sword fishing is a group event and kind of a solo. Like the captains are really fishing. You're just the crew that's on the boat while it's all happening, right? Sure, yeah. So we're, you know, we go fishing for a bull shark. I I catch a bull shark. That was really cool. Oh, nice. Um, That was, yeah. Oh my gosh, that was incredible. But I very distinctly remember the moment. And in sword fishing, you have a bait that's dropped under a big, like kind of like buoy with a flag when the swordfish takes the bait, the flag tips. But I don't really know how this process works. So we're out in the boat, we're talking, we're having a good time. And I look at the flag and the flag's sideways. It's not fully tipped, but it's just sitting diagonal. And I remember mm. like some chatter among some of us on the boat, like, hey, is that something? And we we both like, hey, like we reference to the captains, like, is that is that something going on? And they're very peculiarly, suspiciously not giving us a lot of information. They're like, oh yeah, we see it. Interesting. Not saying anything. Uh-huh. Finally, like they let they like start reeling this thing and it come line goes tight. Swordfish on. Oh. We have no idea like wow. what's what's I've never been sword fishing. I don't know this process. I just know that like there's a huge electric reel. It's very big, very expensive. The buoy uh-huh. and the flag are nowhere in sight anymore. And like wow. there is clearly something on. So we get this fish finally to the boat. And it's not a really long process, but it's quite the process. Like this all kind of happens over an hour and a half or so. We see the swordfish comes to the boat, jumps out. We're like, oh, this is this is a yeah. 400 pound <laughs> huge fish swinging around the sword off the front of its face. Incredible. Oh, man. Wow. So the captain throws a harpoon at it, gets a harpoon in it. Down it Whoa. goes. And then it comes back, second harpoon in it. We finally get it to the boat. It's like a group effort to pull it into the boat. And then everyone's like body slamming each other and cheering and screaming. <laughs> we made friendship bracelets out of the like leader. Like, oh, was, yeah, that's was, great. That's yeah, great. It was such an incredible experience, but I can't imagine that. That's cool. The part that really is important, though, is not necessarily the swordfish, it could have been any fish. It was that, like, it was a team event. It was something that we did together. We'll, like, get the yeah. harpoons ready. Get this rope out of the way. Hold this. Steer uh-huh. the boat. And we all come back wow. together, like, having this successful experience. And, like, that, like, solidified the wolf pack. And yeah. that's what I love about fishing is you go out with one or two people or a group of people. You have an adventure and it bonds you for life. Like you are yeah. bonded, you, you've experienced this together. And I feel like so grateful that I got to have that experience with this group of people. They're my favorites ever. Shout out to the Wolfpack. Yeah, I love that. And it, it's cool. Like you keep saying, it wasn't just like one person's fish. It sounds like it was, right. the, it was the group's fish. So man, that's cool. I've never even experienced anything remotely similar to that. So just hearing it blows my mind the whole, I can't even imagine how big the leader must, how strong the leader must have to be to fight a fish that big you know even just down to that little detail is really cool yeah it, it was a stellar trip and I and I will probably never have that same experience again in my life and um, I'm just so grateful that I got to have it with that crew those people like hold a special place in my heart forever I love it that's awesome well as we've talked about you are a guide mm-hmm. and uh, you've 
you've been guiding in the Pacific Northwest for some time, and it is currently uh, here on the Willamette. We're starting to see some good spring Chinook coming in, and apparently it's only going to get better before it gets worse. And so (laughs) I was wondering if uh, you would be able to give us any tips for getting after those things here in the Pacific Northwest rivers. Yeah, yeah. So um, interestingly enough, like springers is not something that we I guided for. I really encountered a bunch on the Quinault Creeks River and some other rivers on the peninsula, yes. Uh, not very specific to ours. But I have done a bunch of fishing for springers down in the Willamette um, area. And I will say okay. on the Columbia, on the Willamette River, um, whether yeah. you're in a boat, a kayak, or you're um, on one of the bars and plunking for them as they're coming through, figure out the travel lanes of those fish. So one mm. experience that I had, and I learned a lot about springers in this moment. I was at um, a bar. I forget what the name of it is. Frenchman's Bar or something like that. It's some place on the... Do you know that bar, Eric? No. Okay. It's like some, <laughs> some some spot in the Columbia. Um, there's like okay. a sandy beach. You can drive... Anyone can drive up to it. And I was sure. plunking. And for those of you who don't aren't familiar with plunking, you have a big weight. And then off of that, your leader is essentially kind of like a string, maybe one, maybe three different presentations. So maybe you have mm. um, some coon shrimp with um, a spinning glow on it. Maybe you have something else. And there's, there's various yeah. ways that you can do that. Um, but one of the best things that I did... Um, is instead of just going out and throwing it out there and hoping that I have things in front of fish, if you yeah. getting it in front of their faces is like half the more than half the battle, right? Right. So I actually yeah. rode my kayak out there with a fish finder, and I went oh, wow. and just kind of like worked back and forth, different depths out um, from from ten feet all the way up to like you know forty fifty feet, and I was kind of like checking out this drop off off of yeah. this bank. And I found that I was marking fish only at 30 feet, very specifically at okay. this point. So I found the fish highway and I took yeah. my kayak out there. I dropped my gear right where that should be. And that's how we caught springers that day. And wow. I would say that like, no matter what type of fishing you're doing, springers, steelhead, coho, uh-huh. Uh-huh. figure out the highways that they are traveling in. And yeah. you can do that with a fish finder. You can do that by reading water. Where does it make sense that fish are going to move? Where does it make sense? Yeah. Where does it not make sense? Edit out that water. Focus on the highways. Uh-huh. Getting stuff in front of them is so much of the battle. Yeah, that's been a huge challenge for me as predominantly a bass fisherman who for the last five years or so has been attempting to, you know, hook up on a salmon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, is is learning how to read the river because bass hang out in different areas than I think the salmon move up the river, at least from what I'm I'm kind of discovering. So when when you come up to a river situation, what are some features or, or water movements? What are things that you're looking for to find a salmon highway? I love thinking about this in the context of a bass angler and or a salmon angler because there are very distinct differences on approaches to the water. And I learned this through the One Boat Challenge and I learned this since I've been living in Northern California where I have a lot of like just, you know, amazing bass lakes around me and have done a lot more bass fishing. When you approach, say you're a, ba- you're a bass angler, when you approach a lake, you're thinking of like water temperature. What time of the year is it? Are these bass moving on to spawning beds are they moving off the spawning beds now what kind of structure am i looking for are there pinnacles out in this lake where bass are congregating is there downed trees like you're looking for some sort of structure and you're considering where they might be based off of time of year water temperature and other patterning things like that 
But when you're considering salmon, there's a very distinct difference in that salmon are not in fresh water all of the time. Actually, for、mm. a very small part of their lives, are they in fresh water? Because,、yeah. as, like smelt, they are anadromous. They spend most of their lives out in the ocean and they return back. So, if you can think about what the fish is doing with their life, you can learn a lot about the fish. What a salmon、mm. is doing with its life, it's trying to conserve energy. And it's trying to get to its spawning grounds. It is not、mm. interested in, like, you know, checking out different areas where it's gonna, like, spend time and feed. It's not super interested in that. It wants to get to where it's going. It wants to spawn. It wants, then it's gonna die. And then it's gonna float to the side of the river. And then my dog's gonna roll in it. This is the life cycle, <laughs> right? Yep, like, yep. And so, when you're thinking about how to approach salmon fishing, you have to keep that in mind. They wanna conserve their energy. They want to get to where they're going. So, if you're in a river system, let's say you're in a smaller river and you can see that, like, hey, it's coho season and you know, the water's kind of maybe it's kind of low, but there's this deep bucket of water right here with a little seam running through it. There's a good chance that your、mm. coho are going to be in some of this like still or froggy water where it's deep, they can stage and then move up to the next section of river. Sure, they're sure. trying to conserve their energy. Salmon and、uh, generally are very, very lazy. Think like typically actually quite lazy. So, if you're a salmon and you don't want to like spend that much energy to go anywhere, but you have a long way to go, you're not going to just like sit at the top of the river in the fastest little piece of water. You're going to sink down low. And this all, of course, depends on water temperature too. But once you kind of get your head wrapped around what they're doing with their lives, you can make a lot of、uh, informed decisions about where you're going to find them, which is super different than bass. Sa- salmon will always、yeah. be on the move, bass won't always be on the move. Sure. So, and you're talking about the salmon moving in stages. So they aren't just 24 7 swimming upstream. It, are these periods of rest they're taking? Because、uh, they're not eating on their journey, right? Other than aggression bites, because their digestive systems just shut down. They're at the end of their life. What are, exactly are they doing in those waiting periods? Why do they have to have them? Sure. That's a really, really good question. And it changes depending on season, weather, and certainly water volume, which is really important、mm. too. So, yeah, yeah, salmon generally, and steelhead too, generally aren't like coming into the rivers and like thinking, let's eat as much as we can right now. However, they will react to certain scents and other things that indicate like proteins, salts, stuff like that. So, they are, they can be a little bit prone to that, but a lot of it's reaction, as you've said. Um, mm. So, in low water situations, you know, have you ever you know, floated like a lower river and like you have a tail out and it's really skinny and it's you know, maybe a couple inches deep and then it drops into a section that's like has more water and then it、yeah. comes to a bend and it's you know, shallower again? So,、mm-hmm. as salmon are moving from place to place, they will use some energy to like swim up these shallow spots or to move up you know, faster water and then they'll come into slower water again. So, you know, sometimes they like to burn through, but oftentimes,、uh, what I find in tributary rivers, when salmon are first entering, they come in in pods. They stay in pods for the first handful of miles of river on fresh water. They'll come into a section of deep water, they'll hold with a tide change sometimes, or if they're, you know, much further above the tide,、um, they will wait. They'll have rested a little bit. They'll move up to the next section, wait, rest, move up to the next section, wait, rest. 
So mm-hmm. you can spend your time in the skinny, really shallow water looking for them, or you can go to the big buckets of like hang. Let's hang out. Like it's it's sure. like it's like the cafe. They're all hanging out at the cafe. Yeah. They have a good time. They're gonna move up to yeah. the next section, but they're and gonna if they're not eating, they're just kind of sitting there. In one spot, they're not really moving around too much in those pockets, do you think? So sometimes they can be moving around a fair amount, but generally, like, I can think of the times where I've come up to sections of river where you have a bunch of water and you know there's a ton of salmon there, but you're not seeing a lot of, like, signs or indicators of them. Uh, Generally, Mm -hmm. like, Chinook salmon, not all the time, but generally they're not, like you know, surfacing and splashing around. Coho are very different in that sense. They will splash around and rise and that sort of thing. And this can look Mm. different river system to river system. And I'm mostly referencing the river systems that I spend the most time in. And that's on the Olympic Peninsula. But generally, you don't see them doing a lot. You kind of have to pay attention to when this run is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. What season are you in? Are you September, October? Like, should there be a lot of fish in the water? Mm. And then your water levels. Does it make sense for them to come into the rivers? Some years, like we've had a lot of like record heat and low water. That's changed the runs a little bit. Salmon aren't going to come into a super hot and super low river if they can avoid it. At some point, they'll they'll go for it because they have to. But generally, they'll wait for higher water before they make that transition. Got it. And so they act that way in lower water. Now in higher water, you've had a big rain event. The river is raging. A lot of times you will see those fish shoot up and get through that high water situation into a situation where they can hold and stay a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. So conservation of energy is kind of, or a main thing to think about, um, specifically when you know, targeting salmon species. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, Like I said, you know, my background's been in salmon fishing and bass fishing, but growing up in Alaska, I've said this to Bryant a million times, it's literally catching. You don't have to work as hard for them. And so when I moved down here and had to really start working for, for those fish, I've gotten goose egged more on salmon trips here than I ever have anywhere else. But I I think a lot of it is just not having the experience growing up here, figuring out the water systems, what they like to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, the water's quite a bit warmer down here. So there's a lot of different variables. So that's all really good information to to think about when we're, we're fishing the river system. One really popular method that guys do, especially on the Columbia, but even in the Willamette is uh, trolling. Yeah. Um, And I was curious if you have any experience with that. Yeah. um, In fact, right before I moved to California, I spent my last handful of days on the Willamette River uh, trolling with my kayak and looking for springers. And um, I spent a lot of time in Selwood, that area. I had a friend that fished out of that area. Um, John, the Sultan of Selwood, we call him. And um, (laughs) fished for springers on his boat a lot. And and trolling. I really enjoy trolling on my kayak. It's a bit more active. I'm pedaling. Um, and I enjoy mm. trolling if I'm in good company. Outside of that, no. Yeah. I don't yeah. want to troll. <laughs> I can't do it. I'm too active. I'm too, like, my, my, my brain's working too, like, my, I'm pinging yep. all over the place and just sitting and waiting is, like, a great way to yep. slowly kill me. Yeah. And usually pretty cold as well. <laughs> yeah, it's cold. And then like, what do you do? You sit there, you drink coffee and you eat donuts. Yep. And like, yep. it, it, it has its time and its place for me. And I know a lot of the guys like, you know, you make their living off of that. And it's really cool for folks to come and like, you know, ride on the boat and like go fishing and uh-huh. trolling around and that sort of thing. Um, 
but true to the roots, I'm, I'm river trotting. I'm trotting through the woods. I'm looking for different stretches of river. And that's, that's what I love the most. And there's really distinct yeah. differences between Washington and Alaska too. You know, you're in, in this area, you're like the Columbia river, as we know it now is not the Columbia river that it was a couple hundred years ago. It was a much faster river. Yeah, it was yeah. like certainly not, um, dammed up the way that it is now. Well, and it used to freeze over every year. Oh, I didn't... E- even up until not that long ago. I think I think even up until the 50s, it would freeze over every year. Hey everyone, this is Bryant here. Just a quick correction. The Columbia River froze over for the last time in the 1930s, and before that, it wasn't an every year event, but it was kind of common. So there you go. Oh, that's Down super in interesting. And that's wild as well to to consider that if it froze over now, Imagine the chaos that would ensue, you know, we're, we just, we have no concept of that, but yeah. used to be a every year thing. Yeah. I like the idea of ice fishing on the Columbia. That's kind of funny. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, uh, talking about your experience trolling on the Willamette, let's say you're going out tomorrow. Water level is average. You know, it's not too, right now it's pretty blown out and brown, but let's just pretend that it's, it's going to be a good day fishing. What are you going to be pulling while you're trolling? 360 flasher, probably in white, sure that kind of translucent white, 18 inches behind it, a three and a half inch uh, spinner. Maybe some little prawny on it, maybe not, maybe just running a straight spinner with a little bit of scent, something like that. Yeah, well, thanks for those tips. I think that's going to be real helpful for a lot of our uh, our local fishermen. Well, now my dad will stop bugging me about salmon. He, he's just getting into salmon fishing on the rivers. He's retired and, you know, he'll we'll, we'll talk a couple times a week sometimes and it's like, well, what do you know about this section of river? And what about this lure? And I'm just like, hey, man, that's not my deal. But we are going to have a guest that yeah. definitely try yeah, to help you I out. I would say so. like, um, you know, the... The 360 flasher, the three and a half inch spinner, this is nothing new, right? Like this is literally what everybody is running out there. But what I will say is um, playing with speed and playing with depth, um, there really isn't a one size fits all. There's like a general like, you know, go like a mile, a mile and a half an hour or whatever. Um, Keep your stuff just off the bottom. That generally will put you in a dangerous mode, dangerous enough to catch a fish. Um, but there's really, and I've seen this a lot, and, and from the guides who spend all of their time out there, playing with that depth and that speed is really the key. Sometimes just a little bit slower. If you're marking fish and you're not catching them, try slowing it down a half mile an hour. Speed it up a half mile an hour. Bring If you're marking fish higher in the water column, bring your stuff up. You don't have to stay on the bottom. There's no rules that say you have to keep your things on the bottom. Try different things. Um, because you know, it, they're not constant and they only bite one thing in one way every single season. This changes and don't be afraid to use something totally different. They've seen a lot of 360 flashers and spinners. So in a sea of only 360 flashers and spinners, be the person that's pulling something totally different. That's totally fine. You know, a a killer fish or, you know, a cut plug or something like that. Um, try something different. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've heard a lot of people using, having really good luck on the plug cut herring. Uh, especially in the Columbia. But then there's lots of regulations. It's hard to to interpret. Like the Columbia is actually closed right now. Yeah. Uh, just the Willamette's open. You know, you got to be paying attention to all those if, if bait's even allowed. But I have heard people doing great with plug cut herring. That's fantastic. And yeah, some of those um, like cut plugs, like from I think from Brad's, you can stuff them with like tuna and stuff like that. Like playing with scents, playing with different things like that. I mean, even if it's not like the hot thing right now, sometimes just difference 
allows your yeah. stuff to stand out. Yeah. I've actually been seeing a lot of that in bass fishing over the last year. People are starting to juice their baits. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and bait packages are now coming with juice in them. Yeah, they're flavored baits and scented baits. Yeah. So, yeah, I've, I've seen guys dipping, you know, craws and all sorts of stuff in, in that scent, and then boom. It's... I have a funny story with that. So when I was a teenager... You know, I have my whole tackle box all organized and everything. And I was looking at some plastics and it says infused with salt. And I got to asking around and I realized, you know, people were saying, yeah, the salt, the the bass like the salt. So I got the good idea. I'll just salt my whole tackle box. (laughs) And I put salt in all the little compartments and just salt. I opened it up the next week and everything was toast. It was just corroded. (laughs) rusted up you know i lost i had to i had to start from ground zero so uh yeah the scents are great but don't go overkill (laughs) covering your whole tackle box in it um (laughs) that is so funny the many ways Um, we learn how to be anglers (laughs) yep yep that's exactly right it was a lesson learned uh and now i know why you're not supposed to buy a car from the midwest (laughs) (laughs) pre-salted yeah so um we wanted to ask you uh, just a few more questions. I know that, you know, we can't be here all night long, even though I've really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah. Um, what are some of the challenges you've experienced as a female and a male-dominated profession like guiding? Oof, boy. The, what a loaded question. Um, yeah. I think in different stages of my career, I would have answered this in many different ways. And I think the way I would have answered it in 2015 is like, I don't see myself anywhere. Like, I don't see women anywhere in this sport. I go in to buy gear. There's no gear for women or or like shrink it and pink it. And then it's like fishing gear for women. Um, And so at that point, I felt like there was just no space. And that has changed profoundly over the, you know, the last, you know, eight years or so. Um, but still, I would say the challenge is in a, in a space that is mostly male dominated, it is difficult for the industry to kind of get their head wrapped around the different priorities and the different motivations of women anglers. And not to say that they're all, all are always different than men. I'm, this is a very big generalization, but, um, in some of the research that I've read from the Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation and in my experience with other women and men and women in the outdoors is um, when I'm with women, we really like to enjoy the experience much more socially Mm. than some of our male counterparts. And and men do too. That's not to say that they don't. Um, But I remember this really interesting trip. Uh, It was in Seattle and I was fishing with cut cut plug charters, um, up in the Puget Sound area. I think we were just off of Fox Island. We were fishing for salmon. It was in June of last year. Um, And it was a handful of women that were coming on a media event. It was myself. Some of them were, you know, had prior angling experience. Some of them didn't. We all get on this boat and we want to talk to each other and we want to have a good time. We want to listen to music. We want to like drop our baits down. We want to like, you know, get dirty with things and like enjoy the experience the same. As I looked out, out at all of the other boats in this area, it's, there were so many boats that were just like one single dude in it or like two dudes mm. in it, but mostly yeah. just one single dude out in there. 
Um, yeah. And I think sometimes like that is like very much the like there's you know guides that have full boats and that sort of thing, but there's often a lot of like just dudes out there by themselves in their boats, which is totally cool. People like to go and have like an individual experience. Sometimes like the solitude of fishing is the best part of fishing. But in general, like I find that a lot of my female angling peers really like to enjoy this as a social event and want to enjoy it at the speed, at the pace, in the way that we want to do it. And in, mm-hmm. in an industry that kind of like caters to certain methods and certain ways of showing up in the outdoors, sometimes I feel a sense of like, I don't belong here. I don't feel that really anymore like I felt it at one time, but I really like to see other women represented in marketing. In I like to go into like fishing stores and see things that are like very clearly made for women who are really invested in the sport that isn't just like a lesser version of the men's waders or a pink sure. version of the men's waders. Not that there's a bunch yeah, of pink yeah. waders out there. Um <laughs> Well, salmon like pink. <laughs> I mean, it, this is the thing. Steelhead like pink. Like I had steelhead yep, yep. pink hair for the la- for a year before I dyed it oh, back nice. brown. And it was it was super fun. And we'll say that uh, the, the industry is really looking at how to include women. But sometimes they do that with boardrooms of men who are talking sure. about what should we do to include yeah. women. The answer is get women in the boardrooms. The answer is yeah. ask women what they want in the outdoor uh-huh. industry and in, in, in fishing. They will tell you the answers. Um, yeah. And so I, I say include women in important leadership roles. Ask them these questions as you guys are right now. Like this is how mm-hmm. we move the needle and make it feel more welcoming and exclusive uh, for women. For me, it was never an option. I was going to be a part of this industry. Don't care if they wanted me or not. I was going to do it. Um mm-hmm. But if you didn't grow up the way that I grew up and maybe you want to try it, it can feel really intimidating to go and get started. And you talk about your experience just getting into salmon. You're already an angler. It can feel a little bit intimidating or a little bit of like a hurdle. Um, Imagine not having any experience at all, having no one to mentor you whatsoever. Like your experience is going into the tackle shop and asking questions. If you're a woman, that experience can look really, really odd. (laughs) at times yeah yeah. um and so i think we're moving the needle in the right direction but boy i love seeing more women's voices out there Mm -hmm. yeah yeah no and and that's great i think i've seen an effort at least or and maybe this is only really on the media side of outdoor space uh media is trying to get more women engaged or at least make it look like there's more women engaged with hunting and fishing i don't really know if i've seen the fruit of that yet because when i go to a lake you know it's really a bunch of dudes and maybe a few of their wives are there so it's interesting hearing your perspective on that and how what do you think will be the thing that gets more women engaged in the outdoors? I think the thing that gets women more engaged in the outdoors is um, ensuring that, and it's from men. So I think men have a big role in this, but also women do too. But it's really bringing women into the space to have a say. So like when I mentioned women in the boardrooms making decisions behind what women want, women are going to tell you what they want much better than a man's going to tell you what a woman wants. You mentioned that oh, you're, I can tell you're you married. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know this, right? You know this. And so I think the way that we're going to continue to move the needle is to bring more women into these spaces and um, really listen to what they're saying. And you nailed it right on the head. You, you said that sometimes groups 
make it look like there's a lot of women. There is a performative aspect that does happen that, you know, companies just bring in women because they're women and, tr- and try to like, you know, promote them. And I get that the intention is going in the right place. But if we really want to see women in this industry, if we want to bring them in and then we want to keep them there, I think what we have to do is like authentically hear what it is that they want, bring them in spaces where they are telling the industry what they want and the industry is responding to that. And then outside of that, there's layers. It's not just women, right? There's a I would yeah. say that like if you were coming into social media right now and you wanted to have a platform as a woman, if you are a younger woman, you're going to fare better than a much older woman. There's an ageism mm. that comes with this. This comes with yeah. age. This comes with race. This comes with lots of different layers of experiences in the outdoors. And so I think bringing different people, bringing a diverse group of people, really hearing and listening to what they want and then doing it without just a dollar sign in mind is how we're going to turn the ship. It's going to happen, but it's going to happen very slowly, but it is going to happen. And do you feel like your platforms are a way that you've helped? Is that a goal of yours is to help women feel comfortable in the outdoors? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that there's um, there is a necessity to having women like I'm going to take it a step further here right now. Not only is it important to have women in the outdoors, but the future of this industry rests on the women who are raising other women and raising other young men who are going to be a part of this industry too. The very life, the very like heartbeat of fishing as a recreation, as a life way, as a sport rests on the mothers who are bringing them out fishing, on the mothers who are like creating an environment where engaging in the outdoors is something that their kids are doing. Like this is what it really is all about. Like not only do we want women, like we actually need women as a part of this industry to see it through into the future. Men can't carry it. Sorry, guys. <laughs> you know, just just being in the industry a little bit myself, you look at the pro staff teams and stuff like that, 99% of them are full of men. Oh, yeah. You, you don't see any females on FLW, MLF, Bass, you know. Once in a while, you go to a local club event or, you know, a bigger tournament and you'll, you'll see some women there, but it's kind of few and far between. So you, not only are you a great brand ambassador, but I think you're a great ambassador f- for the sport to bring other women out and, you know, kind of share your knowledge. And I mean, you have a great YouTube channel, a great following. Thank you. Both on social media. It's Thank you. Almost 30,000 on Instagram alone. And you're better at fishing than most dudes. Yeah. <laughs> Straight up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's super awesome. I don't know very many females that are like, hey, let's go fishing, let's go kill them, you know. And so I'm trying to kind of synthesize what you were saying about how without women, the outdoor industry will die. And that makes me think of uh, pol- politics and policy Yeah, partially uh, because if we're only marketing toward men and really if we're only – if the only people who are engaged with hunting and fishing are older men, which the average age of uh, people who own hunting license goes up a year every year Mm -hmm. uh, in the United States, then eventually not only is, okay, so men only, that's only 50% of the population. Older men only, that's even less and less every year because, you know, everyone dies eventually Yeah, um, or gets too old to participate. So that, I mean, in my mind, even just that simple reality of voting and 
and helping people to understand what life in the outdoors really is and uh, the role that it can play in everyone's life and should play in everyone's life. I think just even that simple fact validates everything that you're saying right now. But, you know, there's even more to it than that. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, fishing isn't just about um, going and catching a fish and then going home. For a lot of people, fishing is about going and getting a fish, bringing it home, cooking it, sharing it with your family. Whether women were out fishing on that boat that day that that fish was caught or not, they're a part of the process that gets it home on the table. You know, maybe they're cooking it, preparing it, something like that. And this, you know, can go either way, men or women. But generally, women are still involved in this process, whether we see it or not. Uh Um, And I think it's important to, like, really, you know, bolster that, encourage that. Um, You can have a part in fishing without ever having a rod in your hand. And there's no wrong way to enjoy this unless you have dynamite. That is wrong. Outside of that, (laughs) there's no wrong way to do this. poison, maybe? (laughs) Okay, let's think of a bunch of wrong things. (laughs) Right. Dynamite, um, making your own dams. um, Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, anyway... I think that's really awesome. Um, and you mentioned, too, that there's more to this outdoor experience than just what it is on the surface of collecting food. That's one thing that uh, is kind of foundational to what we're doing here with the with the podcast is this reality that people have grown so separate from where their food comes from. And the analogy I, I've said before is like when you when you microwave a Hot Pocket, you don't think about the fact that the grain was grown in a field, the meat comes from an animal, the cheese comes from an animal, the, the tomatoes for the sauce that's grown on a farm, you know, and, and how we are 100% dependent on the land mm-hmm. for our food, whether you are skipping the middleman and going and getting it yourself Mm-hmm. or you're going to the grocery store and buying frozen food. I mean, sure, there's some ground in the middle there, sure. but two extremes. Um, with that basic connection with the land, it sounds like that concept also resonates with you and sort of what you want to express through your influence in the outdoor sphere. Yeah, and I think there's two important elements to that to me. One, Richard White, um, he wrote that. So I'm also um, a doctoral student of history at the University of California. So I'm about I'm about to like talk about some nerd stuff right now. All um, right, sounds good. <laughs> Richard White wrote a book that everyone in the Northwest should read. It's called The Organic Machine, and it is um, okay. it is a book about the Columbia River. But he talks about what is natural about dams and what is unnatural about salmon, and that seems really backwards, mm. right? But yeah. there's a natural aspect to us wanting to create power and, you know, generate, you know, things that sustain our lives. That's a natural thing. But are the chemicals in the salmon's body, does that seem natural? We tend to think of nature as something that's out there, like we're inside and that's not nature, but nature is out there. And that's really a misconception. Mm. Like we are, we are always a part of nature. Nature is everywhere, like in everything. And so like the idea of a dam, you know, that is human nature to like involve ourselves in our resources. 
Um, and maybe there's something that seems less natural about hatchery produced salmon or the chemicals um, that, you know, unfortunately are like accumulated in the salmon body or something like that. And so I just really yeah. like to get people to think about nature and our involvement with it a little bit differently. We're more entangled with it than we like to think about ourselves. We need to stop thinking about ourselves as mm. outside. We are always a part of an ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think the the other like really important element to me is um, I mentioned earlier on in the podcast that I'm a 142nd generation angler. And this is where the spiritual piece really comes yeah. in for me. Like I said, I'm a historian and um, mm-hmm. we all kind of have like different levels of um, what we understand of our history. But this is not a discovered land that we're on. This is indigenous land that was colonized by Europeans. And for a very, very long time, and one that continues on today, there is a profound relationship that indigenous people have with their ecosystems. And like, I know that myself, my family, other indigenous people are the realized dreams of their ancestors that made a lot of hard concessions to ensure the future of their people. And so between these two things, between the continuity of the resource itself of understanding that we are a part and we have a profound impact on our resources and we should think about our involvement in that. And that being here and um, storytelling, being a member of my tribe is by no accident um, that these two things Mm. have happened. And to me, like this is a big part of my identity, but this is essentially my purpose and why it is I do what I do. It is for these two things. Yeah. Wow. I think that's said so beautifully, put so perfectly. Thank you. Really, especially bringing, you know, and say the name of that book again. It's The Organic Machine by Richard White. Okay. And thanks for bringing that uh, perspective on how your connection with the outdoors goes beyond physically yourself, but it sort of supersedes that into a spiritual reality that's part of your culture and, and who you are as a human being and how I would argue everyone needs to tap into that aspect of who they are as a human being, a creature that came from this land that still is a part of this land. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think we've had a great conversation tonight. Really appreciated you taking the time and that our schedules lined up and everything worked out for this to happen. Could you please tell us a few things? We want to know what kind of stuff you're working on where we can follow you and uh you know if anyone wants to hire you as a guide where, where can we find any of that kind of information yeah definitely so i'm on all platforms at badash outdoors and right now as i kind of briefly mentioned i'm i'm working on my phd in history at the university of california for the next several months i will be well for the next three months i will be wrapping the courses portion of that i intend to be much more uh present in the Pacific Northwest where I do plan on running a handful of fishing (laughs) trips this fall. I probably won't do it a ton or full time, but if anyone is interested, reach out to me ash at badashfishing.com for email or on any of the platforms that I mentioned, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Going forward, I'm really, really excited and I can't, I can't say too much yet, but what I can say is there, I had a production meeting today with a production company and there's going to be some really exciting things in the television and digital realm coming out uh, in the next okay. year or so. So um, Badash awesome. Outdoors yeah, is really going to be cool. bouncing all around Salmon Land. So. 
All right. I love it. So, and you said you can't share too much about that yet, but that sounds really exciting. There's a little bit of mystery there. When that comes out, will it be pretty easy to find it as long as we're following you on social media and whatnot? Yeah. um, So you will definitely, if you follow along on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube at Badass Outdoors, I will definitely keep everybody posted. And I, I really am kind of a, I'm not a very good influencer. Sure. I don't really like to think of people as followers. And like, I think all of that is actually really weird and an odd dynamic of like <laughs> relating with people. Um, yeah. I engage yeah. with people in the social media realm as my community and my outdoor family. Mm. And um, so I really do like to keep people posted on what I've got going on in my life. And that's not just a salmon technique and, you know, an inspirational sure, video yeah. here and there. I like to wrap you know, history, salmon fishing, uh, sport fishing in general, food, the relationships that we have with our environment. I like to wrap all of these things into what I do. And I, and I share that story through Instagram and meta platforms. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. <laughs> no, we, we definitely look forward to, you know, having you back up this way and, uh, you know, getting together with you going for a fishing trip. Yeah. Yeah. See what badass outdoors is all about. We will definitely do it. I love it. And I, I can't tell you much how much I appreciate you guys having me on. And especially like early in what you guys are doing. I really, really appreciate that, you know, we've had a chat today. Anytime I get asked the question like, hey, like, what are you doing? Why does it matter? It reminds me of why it matters. And it matters for moments yeah. like this where we get to connect with other people and share knowledge and hopefully mm. inspire somebody else. So thank you guys for kind of awesome. reinvigorating that for me today. Great. Yeah. That's, awesome. and that's that's what we're all about. Thank you for taking part and thanks for this conversation, Ashley. Thanks guys. Take care. Mm-hmm.